Hey, super pumped uh, that you guys are with us, that you're here, tuning in, continuing a series tonight, part three, uh, Walk It Like I Talk It. And throughout the course of the series, uh, we've been walking through the book of James. And uh, the big idea behind the book of James, uh, who's the very half-brother of Jesus, um, was he wanted to inspire followers of Jesus to live out their faith. He wanted to inspire followers of Jesus to live out there. It's actually put action behind the faith that they professed. And what we find in the book of James is um, that spiritual maturity uh, has nothing to do with knowledge. It has nothing to do with knowing more. It doesn't have anything to do with knowing more of the Bible. Um, What spiritual maturity actually looks like is when you begin to walk it like you talk it. It's easy to talk about your faith. It's easy to talk about the things that you believe, um, but James would tell us that a faith that is alive, a faith that is living, a faith that is growing, a faith that is maturing, because we're all in process for the rest of our lives in process, a faith that is maturing is one where um, you walk it like you talk it. And so we've been working our way through um, James's challenging words. I mean, he kind of gets right up in your face. But again, he's talking to Jesus followers. So if you're not a Jesus follower and you're trying to figure out what you believe, James isn't telling you to do this stuff because this isn't what you should be doing. However, what I hope is that as you see um, a Christian challenging us to actually live out the way that we believe that you might be inspired um, to investigate a little bit more about this man named Jesus and the teachings that he had. So tonight as we continue Walk It Like I Talk It, uh, we're gonna be talking about favoritism. Favoritism. Um, James comes right out the gate in chapter two to tell us about favoritism. And um, any, anyone in here uh, is fairly confident, and you can let us know in the chat, uh, you're the favorite child. Anyone, you just know, lot of, whoa, y'all way too confident. Y'all way too confident. Can anyone in literally two seconds tell me why they're so confident they're the favorite child? Why, you, right, you were the first one that went up. Why, why are you the favorite kid? You're the second child. Oh, so second kids are the favorite kids. Okay, I'm the first, so I don't know. That's pretty jacked up. You, you are fairly confident. Why, why is it? Why are you so confident? All my parents' passwords are my name and birth <laughs> That's good. That's strong. Um, what she said was, all my parents' passwords are my name and my birthday. There's something about that. That's really good. Okay, you know what? Y'all are, y'all are really into this. Tell me, why are you the favorite kid? You're the only kid. <laughs> Okay, by default, that's awesome. Um, that's, that password, that, that got me. Um, and you, yeah, you are by default the only kid, the favorite kid. Um, so may, maybe you were the favorite kid growing up. Um, I don't know that I was the favorite kid growing up. I don't know, maybe you are not. Those of you that didn't raise your hands. I'm sorry, man, we love y'all. We'll pray for you after this. We'll lay hands on you and we're gonna encourage your heart in the name of Jesus. Um, and so maybe you weren't the favorite kid. I don't know, maybe you were um, the teacher's pet. Uh, anyone, anyone teacher's pet confident they were the teacher's pet? I'll be honest, man, I was. In elementary school, your boy walked in with a comb over, uh, polo buttoned all the way up before it was cool and I was answering every question. You know what I'm saying? Like I was right there with, with the teacher and I didn't care about that. I liked being the teacher's pet. No shame. Maybe the coach's favorite, anyone? Uh, like, she was always asking you to, to lead the drills. He was always asking you. My athletes, yeah, I was a favorite. Yeah, okay. Um, anyone that raised their hand in that moment, I don't believe y'all. Liar. Um, but you got your favorites. Maybe you were a camp counselor and you don't have to admit this out loud, or maybe you babysit for a family and it's like, yeah. Family of four, I only like two of them. Um, you know, like, I get it. I totally understand. Uh, you know, we've all got favorites, we've played favorites. 
I get it. Um, but James, uh, what he's going to show us is we've all seen favoritism, experienced it, felt it. Um, and in a lot of ways, we can joke about it. It's funny. But what James is going to show us is the ugly side of favoritism. What James is going to show us is how favoritism um, is actually contrary to the very law of love that Jesus preached about and lived. But he also shows us how it is a slippery slope into some um, evil and twisted things, that favoritism is a slippery slope in and of itself is not helpful, but it's a slippery slope into things like discrimination and even racism and sexism and any kind of ism you can tack on. And so we're going to jump right in um, and what should our response be and how we should handle favoritism? Um, how do we need to root it out? That's where we're going. James chapter two, verse one, he writes this, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show Favoritism. So straight up, he's talking to Jesus followers. This is not something that you can do or that you should do. And then he goes on and he gives us an example. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man, filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. But you say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So he paints this picture. You've got a seemingly rich person dressed well and a seemingly poor person not dressed well. Somebody rolled in with a nice car and somebody walked in pushing a grocery cart. And James says, when you show special attention to the one wearing fine clothes, if you sow special consideration to the one that looks like they've got it all together, when you pay special attention and give a special seat and treat them um, superior to the other, he asks this rhetorical question, have you then not discriminated and become a judge of evil thoughts? And that rhetorical question has two components. And it's a rhetorical question that is expecting the answer, yes. He says, have you not discriminated when you did that? Absolutely, yes. That in that scenario, what's happening is one person is being valued higher at the expense of somebody else. That in that situation, a human being is being given and attributed more value at the expense of another human being. Textbook definition of discrimination. But then he says, haven't you also become a judge with evil thoughts? And the rhetorical question, again, expecting a positive answer, the answer is yes, that's exactly what you've become. That he's describing a scenario where somebody makes a judgment about human beings' value in deciding one is more valuable than the other. One is worth more consideration than the other. And what James is saying is if you are making those kinds of judgments, not only are you trying to take the place of God, but you're also making those kinds of judgments rooted in evil thinking and twisted thought. And ultimately what he's saying is when you try to make judgments on people's value based on what you see, when you try to make judgments on people's value and try to play the role of God, you're going to fail miserably. So in this situation, you've discriminated and you become a judge of evil thoughts. Now I know what you're thinking. Obvious example, Sam. Yeah. Duh. I mean, that's, that's gross. That's bad. You might not even be a Christian and think, yeah, that's jacked up. Who would ever do that? Yeah. Rich versus poor. Very, very obvious example. Can I just challenge you really quick? 
Do not let the obvious nature of this example allow you to overlook the not so obvious ways this might be true of you. Because if you were to dig a little bit deeper, favoritism might happen in your life and it certainly happens in mine more than we might like to admit. Because favoritism happens anytime you value someone at the expense of someone else. Uh, favoritism happens anytime you devalue another human being in any and every circumstance. That favoritism happens anytime you or I look down upon or prioritize somebody based on our preferences, based on sameness, based on looks, based on social status, based on what they can or can't offer us, and even in extreme cases, based on race, socioeconomic background, or ethnicity. So I want to just ask the question. Who's the poor person symbolic of in your life? Who is the poor person symbolic of in your life? On the surface level, let's just start there. On the surface level, man, it could be, it could be that annoying friend that needs you more than you need them and you kind of revel in that a little bit too much. Maybe for you, again, on the surface level, it's, it's choosing proximity to people that can offer you something and then distancing yourself from people that can't offer you much at all. Maybe for you, again, on the surface level, it's the, the pettiness of how we make judgments about people's characters and decide about what we think about them before we know them only because they're a part of a certain group or they're a part of a certain fraternity or fraternity or some kind of campus group or campus organization or something, as petty as it sounds, doesn't make it less true. And it might even be um, that person that's in need or that homeless person that you're always ignoring and avoiding and in your mind you think, well, there's probably a reason why they're in need, it's their fault anyway. You've never said it out loud, but. And let's dig just a little bit deeper. That favoritism sometimes looks like writing off people because they don't have the same beliefs as you. A favoritism sometimes looks like looking down at people that have a different value system than you. Like that roommate you had freshman year, your brother, your mom and dad. Favoritism sometimes looks like cutting down others that have a different political leaning than you. Uh, favoritism sometimes looks like when you and I have those feelings of superiority that kind of start to creep in, when we start to think we are superior to somebody else because of our socioeconomic standing or because of what we have and because of what they don't have, what we've achieved and what they haven't achieved. And favoritism sometimes looks like biases, prejudices towards other people from different races and different cultures. Stereotypes, jokes that are just jokes, sarcasm that maybe rings a little bit too true, and revealing something deep down. See, when you get past just the obvious nature of that poor versus rich example, it's not just an obvious example anymore, maybe it starts to hit a little bit closer to home. And, and, and here's what I know is happening, because I'll be the same way. I was just talking about my team, about how defensive I get about stuff. Um, in this moment, you are probably thinking about somebody else. I'm reading through that list, you're like, oh, I've got to send them this podcast. Let's go, when this dropping, Sam? When is this dropping? 
Like your notes that you're taking are in a text message convo that you're gonna hit send on after. Like that's where you're at right now. You're thinking about somebody else, and I get that. But for just a moment, and we're gonna get to that somebody else in just a second later on, but but before we, we get there, for just a moment, don't allow yourself to think about somebody else. Can we just deal with in here for just a second? Don't be tempted to think about how this applies to everybody else and you seeing the wrong and everybody else that you know, but for just a moment, could you do some deep digging in here first? And let me push this a little bit more. What James is describing here is the action of favoritism and discrimination. By definition, favoritism and discrimination are, are, are very, they're like cousins, it's essentially the same thing. By definition, they are action-oriented that to show favoritism or to discriminate uh, is to have inappropriate behavior towards an individual or a group of individuals solely based on um, your evaluation of, of race or socioeconomic status or their social class. So it is, it is action-oriented. You know this, though. Behind evil action is wrong and evil thinking. Wrong and evil thinking, that's what prejudice is. So prejudice, prejudice doesn't describe the action. I think definitions are very helpful. Prejudice is irrational or unjustifiable emotions or evaluations or thoughts um, based, about an individual or group of people based on some kind of factor like race or social class. So what you have is wrong and evil thinking that leads to wrong and evil action. Here's why that's important. If wrong thinking, say like prejudice, never manifests itself into action, the thinking is still wrong. The thinking is still evil. And the thinking needs to be rooted out. Because maybe you're in here this moment and maybe you're watching online in this moment and you're thinking through that list that I just went through and you're like, no, I don't do any of that. Okay, but have you thought it? Have you thought it? Does it cross your mind? Because if it's in here, it's eventually going to make its way out. And we've got to root it out. So why is it so evil? Sounds like an obvious answer, but why is it so evil and what's the antidote? Well, James tells us, James chapter two, we're gonna to jump to verse eight. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Hey, if, if, if you are fulfilling the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing things right. But if you don't, you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. He pits love and favoritism up against each other. They contradict each other. You cannot fulfill both at the same time, even if one of them is just living up here. You can't fulfill both at just the same time. And so why is this so wrong? Again, let's just, it's an obvious answer, but we gotta go there, we gotta talk about it. Favoritism discrimination or any kind of ism, racism, sexism, anything where we are devaluing another human being stands opposed to the very royal law of love that is at the epicenter of the New Testament ethic for how we are to handle relationships. 
that at the very epicenter of the teachings of Jesus, at the very epicenter of everything that he did and taught was this one command, love your neighbor as I have loved you. And when he said that in John chapter 13, verse 34, he was on his way to the cross to die for the sins of the world, past, present, and future. People that loved him and people that hated for him that the relational ethic of the New Testament teaches you and me that if love does not rule, we're doing it wrong. And so ultimately, ultimately, James is saying, hey, so the way to get it right is to love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what favoritism is. I want you to write this down. Favoritism is when you pick and choose who your neighbor is. Let that sink in for just a second. Favoritism, or any kind of ism you wanna put in there, is when you pick and choose who your neighbor is. It's when you pick and choose who is worthy of your love. It's when you pick and choose who is valuable enough in your eyes. It's when you pick and choose who is worthy of your attention, who is worthy of your time. And we start deciding who and who doesn't have value. And when you and I choose hate over love, what we are doing is we are picking and choosing who our neighbor is. That when we allow prejudice to fuel any of our thinking, we are picking and choosing who our neighbor is. That when we look down upon or ignore anybody um, that needs our attention or could use our attention, and even though they're annoying, even though they frustrate us, we are picking and choosing who our neighbor is, when you allow even a trace of any kind of racism or sexism to infiltrate even a minute area of your mind, what you are about to do is begin picking and choosing who your neighbor is. And if you're a Jesus follower, that is not an option. If you call yourself a Jesus follower, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, if you, with everything that you are, want to follow Jesus, this is not an option. If your faith is alive, this is not an option. And if there's anything this world needs right now, it's Jesus followers that figure this out. If there's anything this world needs right now is they need Samaram Assad to figure this out. Because here's what's true. Everyone is your neighbor because everyone has intrinsic God-given value. We don't get to choose who our neighbor is because God has already decided that when he created us. That God, when he created humanity, he put his stamp of value when he said, I've created you in my likeness. That when we were created in the image of God, he determined your value. And then when Jesus went to the cross for the sins of the world, he deemed any person you come eyeball to eyeball with worth his life. We don't get to choose who is valuable and who isn't. We don't get to choose who is worthy of our love and who isn't. We don't get to choose who our neighborhood, who, well, you, you could choose your neighborhood, 100%, choose your neighborhood however you want, you can live wherever you want. But we don't get to choose who our neighbor is because everyone, has intrinsic God-given value. And this is why we have to get this right, because the church is the only entity on the planet that teaches this. 
The church is the only entity on the planet that teaches the intrinsic, inerrant value of every human being. And I think one of the most attractive things about the Christian faith is that you can't have vertical love for God if you haven't figured it out horizontally with people. You can't be okay with God if you're not okay with people. You can't say that you love God yet fail to love people. In fact, John wrote in 1 John that if you say you love God yet fail to love a brother or sister, you're a liar. (laughs) Scripture is not even me. That our vertical love for God should be evidenced in our horizontal love for people. And if we can't get that right, we're missing it. God set the value. So who are we to change it? We're not, actually. And so our call, James tells us in chapter two, verse 12 to 13, as he wraps up this passage, that you and I are to speak and act. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Speak and act as those who have received the very mercy from God. Speak and act as those who have been unconditionally loved by their heavenly Father. Speak and act as those who should have been dead in their sin, yet the love of their heavenly Father sent in the form of Jesus came to save them. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is true for the Jesus follower. This is true for the believer as it relates to our relationship with God. That God's mercy towards us triumphs over his judgment over our sin. That's why Jesus came. That's why he died a death he did not deserve. That God's mercy might triumph in our hearts and over our lives over his judgment over our sin sin. And so what James is saying is that very same mercy should be the thing that symbolizes and emulates everything that we do in the way that we relate to other people. And this is so important because this idea of loving your neighbor, this idea of showing mercy and and extending love and mercy to anybody we come in contact with is not rooted in willpower. It's not rooted in in us, uh, in a personal strength and just kind of gritting our teeth and saying, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna love and show mercy. No, no, it has to be rooted in the fact that through Jesus, our heavenly father has shown us a great mercy. I just, my heart needed to be reminded of this, that it is in God's mercy that he is patient with us even though we continue to get it wrong. Man, I've learned so much about the mercy of God being a parent. If you all just wait one day, man, you're gonna get it. Almost every day I'm like, man, Harper, this is probably what God sees when he sees me every day. There's always a disobeying, just not listening, just not getting it. It is in his mercy that he is patient with us. It is in his mercy that he saved us even though we were dead in our sin. It is in God's mercy that he welcomes us into the family no matter what our past looks like. Watch this, remember what Paul said in Romans, that it is God's kindness and mercy that leads us to repentance, not his judgment. It is God's mercy and kindness that leads us to change, not his judgment. Ultimately, a life of mercy 
diffuses judgment. That as we have been seen this, given this great mercy from our heavenly father, we then are to be givers and extenders of that mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment and a life of mercy diffuses judgment. How? What does that look like? What do you mean? This is what I mean. That judgment builds barriers, but mercy builds bridges. Judgment builds barriers, but mercy builds bridges. That when you and I decide the value of another human being and decide that it is more valuable than another human being, what we are ultimately doing is building a barrier, creating a distance. And sometimes what that looks like is writing them off because of a lifestyle they live that we don't agree with. We are building a barrier. It's ignoring them because they are different or because we don't like them or because they are annoying. What we're doing is, watch this, we're literally building a barrier. That's what that judgment does. It's rooted in evil thoughts. That when you and I are assuming the character about people because of who they voted for, we are building a barrier. That when we allow stereotypes based on skin color to be any kind of driving factor in the way that we think or talk, we are building a barrier and we're being ruled by evil thoughts. You've probably heard this and, 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 if, I, and if I could just for a minute, I, I kinda wanna take an aside just for a second and talk about that for a moment. You've, you've probably heard it said, it's not enough to just not be racist, you have to be anti-racist. And that's 100% true. And let me just tell you, it's really difficult to be anti-racist if, if we're building barriers. And here's what I mean by that. Because being anti, it's not enough just to say I'm against racism. No, 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 no. Being anti-racist is saying I'm not just gonna post on it on social media, I'm gonna be a part of the change. Being anti-racist is saying, I'm going to lead the way to change. I'm going to do my part to educate. I'm going to fight for those that don't have a voice. I'm going to stand up for those that don't have a leg to stand on. I'm going to challenge a system. I'm going to do my part. I'm going to do whatever I can to create a future for this country that we can be proud of. But the way to do that is by way of a bridge. But when we build barriers... We block off the route of influence and change. So ultimately, no matter how you slice it, no matter in what context you talk about it, when we build barriers, we cannot fulfill the royal law of love. And when we build barriers, it's gonna be really, really difficult to incite change. But mercy builds bridges. Mercy builds bridges, and, and sometimes what that looks like is caring for those that are in need even when it's inconvenient for you. Sometimes that looks like extending kindness to those that have wronged you. Sometimes that looks like giving attention to those that are overlooked. Sometimes it means being patient with people that frustrate you. Sometimes it looks like seeing value in somebody beyond what they can give you. And maybe, 
there's some of you over the past year, 2020 and the beginning of 2021, you saw something in somebody close to you that shocked you. That maybe for some of you in, in 2020 or in the early parts of 2021 that we're in right now, you, you saw something in a friend or in a family member or in a roommate and it hurt you. That maybe you saw a prejudice, a wrong thinking, you saw an ideology that you had never seen before. Maybe for some of you, and I've talked to students that are walking through this, that maybe you, you saw something close to you. Maybe you saw racism in somebody that you did not even know existed and you're left wondering, I don't know what to do. And what our default is, telling you I understand this more than you know. Our default is I get riled up and I get fired up. And you know what I want to do? I want to judge. I want to write off. I want to build a barrier. And then I want to burn that barrier. And I want to build another barrier right behind it. But barriers can't lead to change. Bridges can. And let me be very, very clear about something. You ready? I need you to hear me loud and clear. Love and mercy is not affirming and agreeing. That's not what that means. Love and mercy isn't, I'm just gonna be nice about it. Love and mercy isn't, oh, well, you're just gonna take my time. Love and mercy isn't affirming and agreeing. No, no, no. What love and mercy often looks like is having a hard conversation, even when it's uncomfortable. What love and mercy looks like is calling out sin in the people that we love. It's calling out sin in the people in our circles of influence. That's what love and mercy looks like, even though it's hard. That love and, that love and mercy looks like speaking the truth, even when it's awkward, even when it's someone in your family. That's what love and mercy looks like. It's speaking the truth. Love and mercy looks like holding people accountable. Love and mercy looks like helping people understand what they don't. And I know it's not easy, but mercy can build a bridge that a barrier never can. And ultimately, a life of mercy shines. A life of mercy, I believe, can change the world. It's not a life of being soft. You go look at the, the Gospels. Jesus wasn't soft, but he loved fiercely. But that led to hard conversations. That led to speaking the truth. That led to holding people accountable. Pharisees hated Jesus. He called them whitewashed tombs that were dead inside. Jesus wasn't afraid to call out the ugly. But Jesus also believed, hey, but man, I'm going to call it out because I believe there can be a work done. A life of mercy, I believe, can change the world. And ultimately, a life of mercy reflects the very heart of our heavenly Father. And that's where this has to stay rooted. Because if it's rooted in our own strength, I can just speak for myself, man. If it's rooted in my own patience, in my own ability to love, I'm going to fall short. I'm going to fail. I'm going to build up a Fort Knox of barriers before it's all said and done. I know myself too well. 
but by the redemptive power of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit that is alive in me, I believe that I can begin to lead a life of mercy that leads to a bridge. That leads to change, that leads to influence and ultimately reflects the very heart of God that in his mercy, he saved me. And I want mercy. I don't want judgment. So I'm going to reflect that. And here's what I also know is I don't need to play God. That I believe in a God that is going to judge one day. He is. He is a God of justice. And one day there will be an account of all things and he will judge. But in this life, you and I are to lead a life of mercy, to try to lead people to a place of repenting from their evil ways, of repenting from their favoritism, of repenting from their racism, of repenting from whatever it is that the evil that they've got and to surrender their life to Jesus. We get an opportunity to lead that change and build that kingdom here. Judgment builds barriers, but mercy builds bridges. So let's be barrier breakers and bridge builders in the name of Jesus. Heavenly Father, this teaching is not easy. It's layered with frustration and emotion and conviction. Father, I pray in these next few moments you would first and foremost convict the hearts of these students and these leaders and myself as we begin to root out even the smallest bits of favoritism and ugliness and prejudice and racism in our own hearts that we did not even know existed. I pray you would instill in us the wisdom and the divine knowledge and understanding that every human has intrinsic God-given value. That Jesus died even for those that we seem to hate. So first and foremost, Father, just would you help us root it out of us? And Father, and in the same breath, would you begin to instill in us the courage to be the kind of bridge builders that are gonna change this world forever. May mercy not only rule in our hearts because it's a reflection of your love for us, but may that love and mercy go out and be a force of good in the name of Jesus. Would you stir something up in here tonight not like an Alka-Seltzer that fizzles out, but I mean something strong. I mean something anchored. I mean something real. We'll follow you wherever you go. And tonight, I just pray you would give us the courage to surrender, to be honest, and to be real, and to go. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.